32 counties. 32 questions. My name is Una. My name is Andrea. And this is United, United Ireland. Ireland. Yeah, nearly. We usually take a county dive into an issue relevant to that county and then see where in the world it brings us. But in these extraordinary times, will they ever be not extraordinary? We're responding to issues emerging from life within a global pandemic. This week, we frequently talk on this podcast about the different kinds of developments planned in urban areas, aka cities and big towns. And the new entities that colour how our cities are formed, from REITs to build to rent, student accommodation, short-term lets, co-living, <laughs> hotels, etc. But how the hell does the planning process actually work? Like, why does it appear to be easier to build things that are about transient living or tourism than it is to build sustainable housing? Who is planning our cities? This week, we're talking about the planning process. I'm looking forward to this um, under the hood, nerdy conversation, Andrea, as an aspiring city planner myself. I, now that. I keep having these dreams of having like these events where you plan, your, where you're given the challenge to plan a city. I just Oh, that's fun. Does that not just you playing Sims or something? I mean, does I, Sims still have city planning in it? I mean, the last time I played Sims, it was like Windows 95 and you just like plonked buildings down and and then one came along where you could have roller coasters and it got too advanced for me. Now it appears that Sims is, you know, like second life or something. And people like hang out in jacuzzis with cartoon Lego like avatars as a substitute for real socializing. I've never. OK, <laughs> <laughs> moving on. Um, shout out to all of our Patreon supporters. Um, thank are you, you there, for your money. You <laughs> <laughs> Thanks to our sponsors, Sim and Squarespace and MeUndies. Um, and uh, thank you for supporting us. Do you know, we've kind of stalled a little bit on the uh, Patreon. I don't know why. Maybe it's because the global financial collapse and because nobody has any money and the prospect of signing over your debit card to some anonymous uh, crowdfunding tech platform is no longer as attractive as it used to be. But we still feel that we're producing good stuff here. So if you already support us, thank you. Namaste. Uh, please now implement the uh, slightly kind of aggressive and hassling form of peer pressure uh, that socially controls us all to get us more subscribers for our pod tent content. <laughs> yeah, uh, I agree. When, you, when you do that, you get the Sunday Soothe. How do you feel about the Sunday Soothe, Andre? I know it's the, the little... Um, stolen gem in your imperialist crown the joy of my life i haven't listened to this one week's one yet because i've been hung over for the whole week but i'm very excited to listen to it because i do adore it and i've had so many people say that they are delighted that they sign up because of the sunday suit and i'm not even just making that up i swear to god like i know when people talk about their patreon and i can't believe it but they said it's the best thing they've ever done <laughs> this is actually the truth and um, so yeah loving the sunday suit and patreon is sound so be sound and sign up and support us stunning, stunning. now let us mine our emotional interiors 
Andrea, how are you feeling? I'm seeing you slumped there on the Zoom screen. Um, you're kind of holding your head in your hands on and off. I'm not sure what this indicates. It's Wednesday. I'm still hungover from Sunday. Um, I'm going through the emotional process of healing that uh, follows um, <laughs> an event where you lose basically every bit of pent up pandemic pressure that I was carrying was released on Sunday evening. And that was great for me, but I, I it wasn't the one for the people around me. So I had to, <laughs> uh, I had to spend one day apologizing to every single person. Um, but that's okay. Um, they've all accepted my apology. So we're moving on and just yeah. accepting that we sometimes have to let our hair down and maybe there are more productive ways of doing that. But that is my one. As a barman in Memphis once told me, Andrea, ain't no law when you're drinking the claw. <laughs> ain't that the fucking truth? <laughs> uh, shout out to all of our White Claw support uh, group members. Just Growing so by the day. It's just so delicious. It tastes of nothing. It's like La Croix. It tastes, tastes of nothing. Very. Oh, the black cherry one is good. Okay, fair. I actually did have a black cherry white claw a couple of weeks ago. They're unbelievable. Like, they're unbelievable, but they're also like, you get them in a bucket in Berlin Social. I was at drug, drag, drug brunch, drag brunch. And so, do you know when you go and have a bucket of booze on your table, it's always going to go in one way. <laughs> but then, did you know, you stop to go to the bar to get a drink there's a pause and there's a natural maybe like slowing down of drinking but when you have a bucket on your table you just close one finish off one and start another anyway mm. uh, I think the responsible drinking message should be inserted here um, don't get wasted on white claw fellas and ladies it may taste like water but it is uh, just um, anonymous alcohol carbonated with flavouring Delicious. <laughs> um, How are you feeling? I'm feeling, you know, I'm feeling all over the place. I'm in a very heightened giddy state today. Giddy oh as a ghost. God. We'll balance each other out. Uh, I That's know that you... Podcast together. <laughs> <laughs> Yin and yang. I know that you have previously called me a, and I quote, murderer for drinking Red Bull uh, in the middle of the day. However, my girlfriend has just returned from the shop with a can of sugar-free Monster. Oh, uh, this is, um, uh, you know, I think it's probably the biggest test to our relationship uh, to date, to be quite honest. Uh, nobody drinks Monster. It is... Um, Loads of people drink. All my staff I, do. All your who do? Staff. Drink Monster. Yeah, they love it. That's so bad though. They love it. It tastes, it it has this weird aftertaste that kind of tastes like aniseed or something. Mm, delicious. No, you see, uh, you like Sambuca. I can't drink Sambuca. Not so. anymore. After the <laughs> <laughs> But Okay. You know what I Let's think though, uh, not just about how we're all feeling. I there was a, an outpouring of um, empathy on social media that Monday was one of the hardest days since the pandemic because the reality of it has really all set in and we all expected that we'd be further along and that we wouldn't still be in shutdown mode and people's business mm. would have been recovered and etc etc so I think there is definitely a reason why I got white girl wasted and why that there is this feeling of something 
clattering along and that it was the Mondayest of Mondays on Monday. Mm. Um, I didn't really do anything on Monday. I think I protected myself from it all. I just read a book and sat on the couch. Um, you know, I mean, what else is there to do? Uh, so let's move on now from our um, joint, very heightened um, emotional breakdowns, uh, which I'm glad we're going to have this document in the form of podcast. Um, throughout. <laughs> and let's take you to the state of the nation. What is going on in the Emerald Isle on which we live? So what is going on is the Midlands are in lockdown. Um, Kildare off Leash. KOL, not Kings of Leon. <laughs> it's actually uh, an acronym for the lockdown. But what? Oh, and if you do it backwards, L-O-K. Lock. Lock. There you go. Wow. wow. Well, this is, there's something they're not telling us. Uh, this is, this is why it's the 5G towers. It's the acronym, acronym lockdown. There is a colonial woman on the wing. She is churning butter, etc. Uh, what's interesting about the lockdown or not interesting is the fact that there's been so many warnings about this happening. Um, and then we are getting the Taunashta coming back at us, gaslighting us with the there's no blame game to be played here. Um, I think there might be a little blame game to be played here. Um, and how it's okay to lock down three counties, but it's actually not okay to lock down three businesses. Um, mm. so the, the question hangs over that. And I do understand that an outbreak can happen anywhere. And I do kind of go to the other, try and get the other side. An outbreak can happen anywhere. But it, if it is happening, would, would, would you not stop that rather than the whole counties? would be my take. Yeah, I think it's also that people are paying for um, systemic failures, really. I mean, we know, we've we known from things that have happened in Germany and in the US that meat factories, for reasons based on how people work within them, that they are working in close proximity, that a lot of workers are very low paid, uh, that they often don't have sick pay, so maybe feel like they have to go to work when they might not be feeling well, um, that these settings, uh, because of their low pay uh, and, and challenging conditions, uh, are often left to um, immigrant workers to do, which says a lot about us as a society. I think uh, oftentimes people with very few resources live in shared housing that where social distancing may not be possible. And that's before we even get into the fact that there are, are also clusters in direct provision, which people were shouting about for months, which has now happened. And of course, there is a crossover in some cases between people working in meat processing or at dog food factories, actually in this case, and, work, and living in direct provision. So the government knew that these were, you know, and also I saw these things of like at risk, at risk settings. It's like the, or people at risk. It's like the people themselves are not at risk. They have been put at risk because of very particular design of both workplace and uh, direct provision centers. So sort that shit out. I, the pandemic is, a, is an exposing force. It's exposing all this stuff that is wrong. 
And a really great way to not have clusters in direct provision centres is to not have direct provision and have people with housing where they have privacy and space. I can't believe that we haven't, that, that conversation hasn't spilled over into the political sphere of the FFG teams that we're not discussing the ab- abolition of direct provision. It seems like the only thing to be discussing right now. Stephen Donnelly um, has been talking about the new colour coded system. No more phases. They were just a phase. Uh, now we are going to have a colour coded system. Um, like the one that we have for weather, where we used to just have rain, uh, but now we have yellow rain warnings. Uh, so I heard him on the radio. I heard him on, uh, he was talking to Louise Byrne on Morning Ireland. I think he was talking to Sarah McInerney as well. He's very good at kind of saying nothing, isn't he, Stephen Donnelly? Like he's kind of, he's got, he's at that good point in a politician's communication where he his practice uh of of speaking uh in a straight talking way uh seems like he's communicating a lot of information in a very personable way and he's not talking like a politician this too will be a phase uh eventually the 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 pure spin will start to smooth those edges that feel like they connect with people, and all of a sudden he'll be doing the Craig Doyle Owen Murphy uh, tech thing. My favorite two pure spins this week were uh, the photographs of Leo buying shoes, obviously, mm. um, but then also today <laughs> there was like numerous pictures of some a person on a motorbike stopping. Uh, to tell Simon Harris that he was the best health minister ever and that he should be the next Taoiseach. And literally all the reporters are like, this man has just stopped to tell Simon Harris he's the best health education uh, health minister ever. It was like, this is like, this is bananas. This is like, it's like watching, remember back in the day of PR where there was like seven models um, on <laughs> like these are all like being staged and this is the result it's like what the fuck are we back there in protocol <laughs> oh 100% Leo Radker with a bowl of fruit on his head on Stephen's Green <laughs> advertising uh, new Dublin bus uh, fair <laughs> no a new fruit factory um Keelings. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, it is very, it's very um, early Celtic Tiger stuff, isn't it? It's, been, it's bananas. It is bananas. I'm jumping ahead. I'm jumping ahead. That's not what's bananas this week, but that's bananas also. Anyway, uh, say goodbye to phases. Say hello to colour coded systems. Colour coded um, systems, to be honest, I think. Yeah. For now. We'll see. And what we're, what we're striving for is blue. Yeah. Um, Blue is the warmest colour and uh, the safest one, not to be confused with green, which Stephen Donnelly thought was a bit confusing with green list because green list makes you think that things can go along as normal, but you absolutely can't because nothing's normal anymore. Anyway, he spoke for an extensive amount of time and I didn't really glean much information from it, which is when you know, um, you know, a politician is probably satisfied with themselves. <laughs> now, Leo Varadkar is continuing the tried and tested uh, Fine Gael method of attacking Sinn Féin to get more Fine Gael supports. As we know, this has worked out really well for Fine Gael uh, 
most recently in the in the recent election where they uh no <laughs> joke okay so basically what this is a tweet that um uh the tarnish that sent on Wednesday night and it I seemingly took him 11 days to come up with this it's in reaction to when Lynn Boylan was basically discussing this kind of um bill around house or landlords and all that kind of stuff in the Senate uh Lynn Boylan the or Sinn Féin senator and she was kind of saying to Barry Ward who's a Fine Gael senator you know well you're a white middle class guy you're going to view the law differently to somebody else who's maybe a traveller or a member of the Rambo community blah blah in relation to this kind of uh, toing and froing they were having on on uh, legislation around landlords and stuff like that Barry Ward went uh, mad in well no not mad he basically was just like how dare you say this to me i've been representing people as barrister those i know people those people those people uh, barry ward is hometown boy from dean's grange my hood um and uh leo vradker uh retweeted barry's tweet from uh, August 2nd, saying if you are white male or even worse middle class Sinn Féin doesn't want you so much for an Ireland of equals. Now, there's a lot to unpack here, isn't there? First of all, there's the uh, counterproductive attacks on Sinn Féin. That is a reflex of Fine Gael. Um, Second of all, there's like the, you know, sentiment in it that is kind of very like Pride Boys, you know, this kind of men's rights thing uh, where you could kind of extrapolate from it that, you know, he's kind of dog whistling towards the most marginalized people in the world, um, white male, middle-class people. Uh, Then it's the kind of the thing that Leo does, which is like, you know, the Chinese proverb thing, you point one finger at someone and three are pointing back at you, uh, that he accuses other people of marginalizing people uh, and, you know, so much for equality, while he himself um, is not the biggest fan seemingly of large sectors of society, particularly people who are poor. And then there's the other part, I guess, where it's like, what are you even saying? Like, it's such a weird thing to say. Um, and then, okay, there's so many things in this. There's also like the the white reference of like, we've yeah. been through a, a Black Lives Matter full conversation that we're still going through. And it's like, well, what about white people? Sorry, what? Yeah, none of it makes any sense, but it's always packaged in this very weird. I mean, we always kind of see these comments from Leo Varadkar time and time again that are just like weird. And they're half kind of this could be a national party tweet, uh, half um, so badly thought out where he's thinking he's thinking he's being strategic, but so badly thought out that it kind of means nothing but gets people really inflamed about what he's saying. Um, this was always going to happen. I'm sure there's more to come. Anytime Leo Varadkar is on any kind of wave of like popularity or feels like he's comfortable or like doing a great job, he Im- like inevitably shoots himself in the face. Like that one that Harry McGee wrote the other day, literally like <laughs> like salivating at the altar of Leo Varadkar. It was like, sorry, what? Excuse me. Is this piece... Um, but that's a side note. I just go into the in, initial West Wing stages of like, okay, what 
the fuck is going on in a strategic level here? Is this to divert from something else? Is this that he's like, okay, I decided I was going to step back as Taoiseach and rebuild Fianna Gael. Is he just going back to blue shirt vibes and going full MRA, uh, lads, buzz, and let's build this party up as the like alt-right party of of the popular vote um, or not popular vote as the case may be or is he actually just after being on the White Claw and uh, just going ah lads that, what they did to him was in bits I'm going to I actually have to say something and that's what he came up with It's hard to know I mean I think um, sometimes like Leo Varadkar constantly shows us who he is in terms of how right wing he is um, and 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 it's it's I feel like Irish people are always kind of shocked because we're not necessarily used to this particular kind of very Tory brand of right wing stuff, and Leo um is all about that, I guess. Um, and the other thing is is I often think people give him too much credit when he does stuff like this. Like Leo Varadkar does stuff and says stuff um that is really dumb, you know, like. And and it's often very much totally unprompted. And and when you look at the pattern of when he screws up, it's always, you know, self-made screw ups from, you know, uh, that weird comment he made about Trump and the media at that like private lunch in the States to his comments about Trump giving him a call to like sort out of the golf course thing or whatever. Like he just says this stuff and you're like, dude, what are you saying? So I think it's a mixture of um, a very like weird way to communicate. Um, dog whistling, but kind of abstract, like who are you actually trying to gain attention of? Um, and then, you know, always backing up the lads, you know, supporting the lads. And Barry Ward is very much in that vein. You know, um, Barry Ward... Uh, you know, again, he's part of the the. He's, he's from part of the city that I, I'm from as well. Um, he's he's very like middle class guy, <clears throat> and um, you know, in in his um own self promotion, like in his own profile and stuff on the Finnegal website, he's like, you know, I fought really hard for marriage equality and uh, for gender and marriage equality. So Barry Ward uh, put down a motion in 2013 in Dunleary Rothdown County Council that the council support marriage equality, uh, which they do, which they did. Um, at the time was something that was happening in councils all over the place uh, in the run-up to the marriage referendum. The idea that Barry Ward like was out there as a foot soldier, you know, really fighting the marriage equality fight is, you know, a bit much. His common, his, his positioning himself that he's like, you know, a gender equality soldier is kind of ridiculous when uh, he actually claimed that he was a victim of gender quotas um, back in 2015, uh, you know, when when Mary Mitchell O'Connor was running in his constituency. And, uh, you know, he was out there basically saying that the quota moves for Fine Gael was, quote, a nuclear option and that other uh, milder initiatives should be kind of uh, improve, uh, you know, with regards to improving gender gender balance uh, should be taken. So, um, you know, for for uh, for him to be kind of out here saying that kind of stuff, um, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I think it's just there's two things going on. Well, there's multiple things going on, and one of them is 
um, Leo Varadkar just being kind of strange and tweeting mad stuff. That's also a distraction from other things and how we're talking about it now. Uh, like, and also that big eviction last night, is it to divert from that? Uh, that was Garda enforced, that was sent through Facebook. Is it to change yeah. the conversation? Like that's, that's where my mind goes. Maybe I'm just giving him too much strategy in his mind. Yeah. So there you go. Leo, gonna be Leo. And now it's the main bit. You're about to learn all about the planning process. Andrea, what do you know about how planning gets planned? So my thing my thing. I have spent a lot of time really trying to get to grips with my frustrations about trying to figure out how all these shit storms are appearing around the city. And I, I live in Dublin, Nate, so it's really feeling the impact of all these co-living, student living, uh, hotels that are shitly designed and just bopping up all over the place. Most recently, the uh, Molyneux that was proposed for uh, the Liberties. And when I go... Um, diving into who is responsible for signing this off, it always ends up back that the the councillors are calling out for someone to do something and the TDs are calling out for someone to do something and stop this happening. There are directly elected officials and they're literally spending their time on Twitter going, this is an outrage, we need to stop it. They should be the people who are in control of the country, essentially. So there seems to be this stopgap. Obviously, we have um, on board Panola, but also we have the county councils. And I am just trying to put together, who, because what I've been, I keep getting this feedback on Twitter that actually the people who are um, in control of this are unanswerable to anyone. So they can just keep going off and doing what they're doing without having to be answerable to anyone or especially more importantly, answerable to the people of the city. Um, And given that they're not elected, they can just bop off and never have to worry about, oh, I can't do this because it won't be popular, or it's not what the people want, or blah, blah, blah. It's a soul vision. But I don't know what the who whose visions these are and who's signing off. So I am pretty excited about this episode. Yeah, I guess uh, having, you know, public servants and in, in control of planning who are objective and non-political uh, is a good idea because I know that like the people who are maybe in charge, let's say we've talked a lot about how it would make a lot of sense if there was like directly elected mayor in our various councils around the country and then they would have like ministries within the councils and there would be more transparency over decision making but at the same time, having like smart planners who aren't dependent on currying public favor is a good idea, you know. But um, we like I think at the end of the day, planning, it's a bit of a mystery, isn't it? How are cities planned? Are they planned? Where did all these hotels come from? Who is building all this luxury student accommodation with one Xbox controller and a single bowling lane and calling it a games room? Question mark. Why is Press Up opening Irish themed bars in actual Ireland? That has nothing to do with planning. It's just something that's annoying me. 
Why does the conference centre look like a Red Bull car from an early early 2000s music festival? Why does the council keep building social housing with triangular roofs evoking factories that have long since been turned into offices for tech companies or just demolished because of the Irish famine gene that requires us to stuff our faces with new things forevermore? Pull out your kitchen, buy a thousand euro bike and the bike to work scheme every four years. Ridiculous. Um... Why must developers in Dublin gaslight us by maintaining the literal facades of buildings while demolishing the rest, thus making real and actual metaphor about the superficiality and vacuousness of late stage capitalism and neoliberalism? Um, can we answer those questions? You're really enjoying this rant today. I know you are. Continue on. That month is kicking in. <laughs> <laughs> What is the impact of build to let? What is build to let? What are STZs, not STDs? PBSA, REITs. We spoke about REITs before. Check out our REITs podcast. Why doesn't the council build? Do we want them to build anything considering the absolute hack of the bollards and Drury Street in Dublin, for example? Is on board Planola the good guy? Is Antashka the good guy? Who is the good guy? Why is there not a good woman? How did private developers end up with public land? What does part five really mean in practice? Do we need massive public housing new builds? Or could we not just solve our dereliction problem? Are we about to build the right kinds of houses in the wrong places? Or are we just all going to be living in insta-tenements called co-living while eating vegan tacos from the matte surfaces of knockoff Eames chairs and the harsh glare of fake neon flamingo lamps while Prince of the Pigeon House stare down from our paper-thin teal walls, reminding us of an endless recession while our futures crumble before us in our Facebook jobs as we flag tickets of child abuse and acquire PTSD in an outsourced office somewhere in Grand Canal Dock? What about that? <laughs> all of this and more... Coming right up. So Orla Hegarty is a lecturer and assistant professor at UCD. Uh, She's a course director for the professional diploma in architecture there and also registered architect in Ireland uh, and in the UK and is a member of the Royal Institute of Architects of Ireland and the Royal Institute of British Architects. And she's going to inform us all about the nuts and bolts of the planning system and why our cities end up in ways that they end up. Hello, Orla. Good morning. Um, So thanks a million for joining us. Uh, One of the kind of basic things uh, before we kind of get into the nitty gritty of it, when we talk about um, development in, let's say, a place like Dublin, uh, there often seems to be a disconnect between or between the things that are happening and the things that people want happening, and then fundamentally, why do these things happen? So, at the v- very kind of basic outset, I suppose, why do we have a planning system, and what is it meant to do? Okay, um, well, just I suppose if we zoom out a little bit, people will know that uh, things in the built environment impact on everybody. Um, so uh, the, the the basic principle is that. Firstly, this impacts on all of us when there is development. But secondly, it is all of us who, who make uh, the profit in development to some extent. I mean, a field in Leitrim is not worth the same amount as a field in Dublin because Dublin has all of the services and all of the infrastructure that make that land more valuable. So, you know, there's a there's a, there's a sharing here to some extent of, of, of um, the value of land and what happens to land. So the reason we have a planning system, I suppose, more broadly is that there's only a finite amount of land. So when we want to do something with it, um, it's worth thinking about 
about it carefully and planning what's going to happen because it'll be there for a long time. Um, and secondly, construction is very expensive, so it's better to make the mistakes on paper and to iron out any difficulties um, early on um, rather than to um, have problems later. Uh, and thirdly, I suppose there's an environmental side to this in that uh, uh, the planning system is how we manage all of the environmental regulation to do with uh, protecting the environment. So whether it's water or pollution or you know impact on, on other ways on people's lives, that's all managed through the planning system as well. So um, in, that, uh, in that context, we need some kind of system that's part of democracy, really, that's a sort of local democracy for how we manage and develop space. And, and, and how that um, impacts on people in the locality, how it can enhance the locality if it's done properly, um, mitigating it, damaging the local area um, in all sorts of ways, maybe by generating too much traffic or overshadowing adjoining buildings or putting too many demands on the infrastructure or causing pollution. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of things to be considered in, in all of that. And the planning system, I suppose, is where all that can be aired and thrashed out to make sure that the right decisions are made before the the development happens. Um, well, a lot of the times, uh, like life in general, when something goes really well, you don't really hear anything about it. But when something goes wrong, you just hear a lot of frustrations and people get wondering how this has happened. So how does our planning system work and what is the structure of command in it and who is answerable to who, etc.? Um, well, I suppose if you, if you think of the planning system as a sort of governance structure, you know, so uh, in the same way that we have other systems for, for governing the country, the planning system is the one where uh, some of this is organised. So the, people often, when they talk about planning, they think it, there are just decisions made and that they're somewhat arbitrary, that somebody, you know, puts forward a proposal and says, do you like the look of this? And it's either yes or no, um, without understanding in any way what's actually, there's, there's quite a sophisticated um, system for decision making behind that. And the reason there is quite a sophisticated decision making system uh, is because uh, there's an awful lot of money involved in all of this. Um, you know, it, it, a, a quite a simple decision can result in enormous windfall profits for people. And if you go back a little bit in time, I mean, people will remember all of the tribunals we had over some of this, whereby rezoning of lands was generating enormous amounts of money um, on a vote in a council chamber. Um, and all of the, uh, the irregular practices and corruption that went along with that. So there has to be a system there that has clarity about where the decisions made and how they're made. So generally what we have is we have in Ireland we have a sort of framework system whereby there are development plans. Every local authority makes a plan every six years. They spend two years putting that plan together. So there's a lot of public consultation and back and forth with things being published and submissions being made and adjustments being made to that. And that sets a framework for that uh, local authority for the following six years. And then planning applications where somebody wants to do something um, with their land or to change their building or to demolish it and rebuild is all assessed within that framework that has been agreed in advance. So when people talk about planning being refused, sometimes it's to do with it not complying with the framework that was in place um, or it may be to do with uh, maybe a neighbour taking an appeal against something uh, and it being looked at more broadly you know, for other reasons. Um, so there's usually a, a long kind of history behind uh, what will be allowed and what won't be allowed. It's not, it's not arbitrary. And mm. is there, so there is obviously an overall vision for towns and cities and is it possible for like 
the people who live in the cities to feed into these plants and how do Absolutely. they do that? Absolutely and you know the, the public participation is a huge feature of our system and it's a real strength of it uh, and that's for a couple of reasons. Firstly the more people who say what they think the better the result often you know uh, people who have local knowledge uh, can input into these plans uh, people who have a bit of vision and drive locally can you know push uh, better ideas sometimes or can come up with good ideas or they can get local support and there's a kind of collective energy then to get things done and um, the other reason for that uh, early and public participation we have is for some level of transparency because if you don't do these things openly um, they'll still happen they'll just happen somewhere else maybe in the shadows or they'll end up in the court system so uh, our planning system um, has a, a, a provision whereby anybody can can have their say in an early stage so you'll often see people in the media talking about well, somebody objected or they blocked it or whatever else yeah, that language can be can be quite misleading really because what we're talking about here is is a is a consultation process so it's, it's an open process and then everything and everybody who's interested it's on paper you know it's available to everybody else to read who made a submission, who was involved, who's got issues here. Um, and it makes for a very strong level of transparency. And that keeps um, that keeps the system open and honest to some extent because we know who's involved uh, and we know who maybe supports a development, who objects to a development. And, uh, you know, even if it's um, uh, elected representatives or somebody like that, uh, the fact that it's open means that we know about it. And that, you know, once you know about things, uh, it can be managed much more easily than if it's all done in the shadows. There is a perception, I think, um, in Dublin in particular that so you have these kind of six year plans or visions for the city, although there's a constant kind of narrative that, you know, what's the plan for the capital or there's no proper, you know, 50 year blueprint or something like that. But I think there, when these visions get kind of copper fastened, like let's say post crash there was a real desire for building to happen again and so you had like strategic development zones and um height restrictions became more malleable and different uh processes where it became difficult for onboard planola to overrule things that were kind of more i suppose automatically granted permission but is there flexibility within that when certain things start to cascade that are utilising the criteria in that planning to maybe um, move a little bit to to uh, stop kind of unintended consequences. I mean, I'm talking specifically about Dublin here where a lot of people in the city have been looking at the proliferation of hotel building, purpose-built student accommodation, co-living developments, short-term let developments and so on, where the people in the city really feel that there should be public housing or affordable housing built, yet it seems to be that it it's very easy for developers to utilize uh, the the six year plan, let's say, to build what they want as opposed to what the city needs. Well, it's actually it's actually the converse of what's happened. I mean, what I described there in the sort of framework uh, six year plan has been unpicked in the last number of years, and and uh, I'll explain the sort of consequences of that. Um, so when when you have a stable plan, it effectively says to everybody who has land in the area, you know, here here's what you can do, and here's what your competitors can do. So uh, it might be zoned for apartments, it might be zoned uh, for apartments or hotels in in city centre areas, for example. Um, but in parallel, you have to remember that the government 
government have, have tax policy and other policies going on that will incentivize certain types of development. So regardless of whether it's owned for offices or hotels, um, or, or student accommodation or apartments, um, there will be a whole other context going on for developers about what's going on in the market and what's going on in taxation policy. Um, so it's, it's usually the other way around. Rather than the development plan driving that we need apartments and we don't need any more hotels, um, what you'll find is the development plan has the flexibility for either uh, and the decision will be made on the basis of which is more profitable. Uh, and this has always been, I suppose, the problem with some of our planning systems, regardless of how good the plan is if it's not lined up with other parts of policy, you'll get the wrong outcomes. Um, on top of that, then, for the last number of years, we've had the Department of Housing doing a lot of tweaking to the system, which is which has favoured certain types of development over others. So, whereas we all agree that we need proper housing in the city and we need it to be affordable, and we all agree that land values is one of the things, uh, the primary driver of what's making it unaffordable. Um, so, so that's the context. But what's happened in the mix of all that is we've had a whole load of policy that have actually inflated land values and a whole lot of policy that's actually incentivized developers um, to you to go for other uses. So when things like co-living was brought in, about two years ago, um, one of the things I warned at the time was that if you do the maths on, on a property development, you know, on a spreadsheet, um, effectively co-living doubles the price of land. So what you'll see is it'll be a competitor for apartments. And when they run the numbers on will we build apartments or will we propose apartments here or will we build something else here like a hotel or co-living, um, uh, every time the co-living or, or in a more intense use like that will, will outwin and we won't see apartment development, we'll see land values inflating up to uh, suit co-living and purpose-built student accommodation and hotels, uh, and we won't get apartments or we won't get a sustainable housing being built in the city. And, and that's really what's played out. And uh, um, we're seeing a whole load of applications at the moment for, for co-living in the city, even though you know the market for that now must be somewhat questionable um, as to whether people want it, whether people want to uh, you know work from home in that kind of environment or be ill in that kind of environment um, but also we're seeing huge disruption in uh, very similar types of buildings I mean co-living is pretty much the same building as student housing or a hotel really it's just that it's got bedrooms about half the size of a hotel um, and if you see in the, around the city now at the moment there are student uh, blocks who are looking for planning permission to convert to tourist accommodation and we have hotels who are offering bedrooms to students on a weekly basis. So there's an enormous disruption going on in the market, particularly because we don't have students and we don't have international, sorry, we don't have tourists and we don't have international students this year. And international students were making up more than 80% of the residents in the purpose-built student accommodation. Uh, because the high prices weren't really affordable to Irish students. So there's a huge amount of disruption going on. Um, and, you know, it's questionable whether there will be any market for, for co-living. Uh, the difficulty there is that if developers have made a com commitment to go and build it, um, they will find somebody to take it. And the real thing, risk, I suppose people are worried about now, is that maybe the people who will take it will be uh, the, the state taking it for homeless accommodation or for direct provision or some other kind of institutional housing, um, you know, which will be really unsuitable with very small bedrooms, very large numbers of people sharing, um, huge damage to people's health and mental health with living in that kind of intense environment with a lack of privacy and uh, you know all of the other risks that go along with people living too closely together. 
Orla, you mentioned there that we have a very transparent uh, planning process, but then when you bring policy into it, it all turns back around to what makes the most profit. So how do we go about making a planning system that is actually about the needs of the people who live in the place and need to visit the place and reside there rather than making money for developers? Um, well, I suppose it's, it's a really broad question. Obviously, there's a huge amount of money. I mean, um, uh, you'll see that it's it's well known that prop, uh, residential property uh, investment is the the largest sector uh, of investment internationally now, beyond everything else. So, investment in residential property has become the prime asset class internationally, and Dublin is on that radar. So, enormous amounts of money are um, in the system from international investment. And that's why we have seen this enormous um, push and marketing towards, you know, that people just want to rent now. It's the European way. You know, everybody wants to rent for life. They don't need balconies. They don't really need kitchens, which I've heard said. They don't need a lot of daylight because they're out all day um, and that this is the way of the future. And that's really a marketing pitch because what effectively that has done is, is if you can if you can do your development proposition and you work out that somebody is going to be paying high market rent, maybe of 2000 a month for 40 years, um, that sets your site value because that's an enormous return on the investment. Um, that same person paying a mortgage for 20 or 25 years is probably going to pay half that amount um, for their housing over the course of it. And they just can't compete with this international investment money. Um, where, where What we haven't done is we haven't safeguarded um, our own market against this. And I don't think, the, you know, it has been considered very carefully that if, 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 as is promoted, that people are going to pay rent for 40 or 50 years, what are the economic um, consequences for Ireland? Because our whole social welfare system in retirement relies on the fact that people um, in, in the main won't have any housing costs and that their pension just needs to cover their living expenses. Now, if people are paying market rents in retirement, that has huge consequences for the state uh, in terms of pension policy and the cost of it. Um, and if people are paying rent that is going offshore to investors um, somewhere else, uh, that also has consequences for the economy because instead of people maybe paying a 1000 a month on a mortgage over 25 years, if they're paying 2000 a month, that's taken a lot of money out of the economy and out of, you know, local businesses and spending power and everything else that people keep money circulating locally uh, and will make people much more vulnerable to um, falling into homelessness uh, because they can't afford it and to the state having to pick up the tab. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of structural issues here and I don't think, you know, when people say there's space in the market for co-living and there's space for built to rent and everything else, um, there's, there's very little risk assessment going on of, you know, how development actually works. And, and we saw it in the Celtic Tiger, you know, when when the market crashed, we ended up with 30,000 homes that nobody wanted uh, that were in ghost estates. And that has been a huge cost on the on the exchequer for the last 10 or 15 years trying to resolve all of that. Um, you know, developers, it, it's, a, it's a bit of a gold rush in some ways. You know, um, it's not that all the developers in town sit down together and say, I'll do a hotel and you can do student housing. Um, what happens is everybody is looking to be first to market um, with the most lucrative proposition. So you can find a situation where you everybody is going to do hotels and then there's a 
oversupply of hotels or that everybody is going to do co-living now this year and that we'll have an oversupply of co-living. And in the meantime, people who are looking for affordable housing, which you know could be built for 250000 each and where people could pay their own mortgage and not be looking for any subsidy, um, is, is just being squeezed out uh, because it's not the most attractive proposition. And, you know, speculative developers will build what is the most attractive. That's their business and they're answerable to their investors and shareholders. What kind of alarm system, if any, exists within the planning system that is triggered when uh, there's a realisation that there's going to be an abundance of a particular development or an oversupply um, because I think, you know, when you walk around Dublin City, for example, like let, particularly in, in Dublin 8, um, you know, you're walking around through large, past large swathes of purpose-built student accommodation, as you say, that is really um, dodgy at the moment, I suppose, because it's difficult to get filled and you can see all the ads for it on Daft and all that kind of stuff. But like when something is very clearly happening that all of a sudden we're going to have, you know, 8,000, 10,000 uh, student accommodation beds in the city all of a sudden. Are there any like little trip wires in the planning system that that kind of go, oh God, we better, we better not do that because in two years time we're going to have loads of units for want of a better term that we won't be able to act, that the market, which is actually supposedly driving this thing, is then not going to be able to work with. Yeah, well, I, I think sometimes people are asking the planning system to do too much. You know, the planning system is the spatial part of it. Um, you know, the people who are setting development plans and doing all of that, you know, work, um, you know, and the research at a local authority level have no, you know, they don't have say in government policy in terms of investment or, or taxation policy or anything else. Uh, and they don't have say with other departments. So, you know, the, the, the purpose-built student accommodation we saw was actually an initiative from um, a Department of Education. Um, and, and I think there was some sort of flawed thinking in a lot of it because the thinking was that if, if we have all these students in Dublin who are sharing houses, um, if we can build uh, purpose-built student accommodation, they'll stop sharing houses. And there was sort of a crude you know, calculation done that um, for every four students you could accommodate in a student block, you would free up a house and that would help solve the housing price crisis. Um, what people didn't add up is that you know students who might be sharing a house in, in Blanchestown or, or Talla or Metfarn or somewhere might be paying four or five hundred a month to share, you know, for their bedroom or maybe a shared bedroom. Um, they weren't going to leave that those places that might have been a 20-minute bus ride from their college um, to move into somewhere that was 1,200 or more a month. You know, um, so it's a completely different market. So what actually the purpose-built student accommodation did was it allowed the universities to increase their international student body, um, who obviously pay quite high fees and were quite um, well prepared to pay those level of, of student uh, accommodation. And that's why we had 80% international students. Um, it didn't free up regular housing. It just created a new market for, for a new type of student. Um, so, you know, and that was never going to happen because the price differential was so enormous between them. Um, so that kind of joined up thinking, I think, has to happen at government level. It's too much to expect that local planners can have control over that um, because that is decisions being made at, at high level. And I suppose in some way it's, it's a sort of an active management or risk assessment that needs to be going on where somebody is saying, you know, uh, we have the tourist sector saying like they did last year or the year before, we need another 1,000 plus uh, hotel beds in Dublin because of 
were running at capacity. And yet at the same time, nobody said, yeah, but how many hotel beds are being filled up with homeless, you know, people in emergency accommodation um, when 50 million was being paid in the capital, you know, to hotels to house homeless people, um, you know, and, you know, the, where's the joined up thinking here? Or we're not policing the Airbnb sector. So we have a huge stock of housing actually that's ready and available as a decent places for people to live. But last January, 5,000 plus were um, uh, 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 whole houses in, in the central Dublin were on Airbnb platform. Um, so, you know, we had capacity in the you know, housing sector in suitable long-term housing that was being filled by tourists. We had the hotel sector that was being filled um, with uh, people in emergency accommodation. Um, and then we had a priority being given to housing international students uh, and diverting a limited construction sector capacity away from building the houses that we need. Uh, and then we've enormous vacancy in the city. You know, uh, Dublin City Council did another study and found that um, there were 4,000 vacant spaces on upper floors between the canals that could house 10,000 people. So we have a really easy fix on some of the housing issues just by um, refurbishing and housing people in spaces that are already built and have infrastructure rather than doing what we did last year, which was to have more new houses built in the NACE postcode than there were in all of the postcodes Dublin 1 to Dublin 8. So, you know, that level of joined up thinking, I think, has to happen at, at uh, central government. And it has to be quite sophisticated because there are different levers here that they can use. They can use taxation policy and um, they can incentivize different types of, of development. And also the minister can regulate um, in some ways to, to, to do things properly. And, you know, if you look at the intervention with the height caps, um, you know, we've that's that's an example of, of where the minister can intervene, but maybe where there was so many unforeseen consequences uh, in relation to that. Um, you know, the high caps have been developed uh, through studies of what's appropriate in the cities, um, but they also um, set a level playing pitch um, and keep a cap on land uh, price inflation. So by lifting the high caps, it just fired up land price inflation again. Um, and it also risks now that some of these sites that have planning permission for very high buildings just won't get developed because um, some some areas of Dublin have had permission since uh, about 2000 for buildings over 50 metres in height, so very tall buildings. And if you look at the locations that were permitted for the last 20 years, um, we've had two building booms and only one of them, and that's the one down at uh, Capital Dock that's about 22 floors, only one of them has actually been developed. So um, if, you know, if, if permission was there all along to build high buildings and it was never viable through the cost of them for developers to build them, even through the Celtic Tiger years, um, it's, it's a bit naive to think that suddenly now you'll solve a housing crisis uh, by doing the same. So what we, what we may well see is, is developers getting permission now for very high buildings just to maintain their value on paper of their land, um, but that actually none of these sites get developed now as we go into recession. And instead of having stable policy where you might have had five or six or eight floors of apartments built on these sites, somebody will have a planning permission for 20 floors on the site and nothing will happen. Um we speak so often about joint up policy and I often 
kind of flippantly maybe joke about the possibility of bringing everyone together and having an event almost like a citizens assembly except with all the interested parties around the table figuring out what the vision is for the next 10 years and figuring out like it, why there isn't built into a blueprint that each facility in a town needs to have stuff built in like childcare parks, cultural mm-hmm. spaces, clubs, pubs, all that jazz. Why are we not having this, this big thinking moment of everyone coming together and why are we not formalizing it like we've done and mobilizing all the parties involved to come together to make this vision, including the people who live there? Well, I, I think where a lot of these things get tripped up is is that we're very reliant on on private speculative development. You know, um, not much is led with state uh, with state spending. Um, so uh, the state then relies on private developers who are doing land speculation, and that tends to skew the system because they sent it. You know, you'll see the we can't, it's not viable. You know, um, we hear this argument all the time um, when when you know uh, viable isn't really definable at all. Every site is completely different. Um, and developers will always be looking to squeeze uh, the last piece out of, of, of you know, any site, uh, and that's their business. Um, the difficulty is when you start tweaking policy at national level, as we've seen by shrinking standards for built to rent, introducing co-living, um, and all the other sort of tweaks that have gone on. Um, on paper, they inflate land value, which means people pay more for land. And then they find themselves in a position where the market has shifted and it's not worth their while developing the land because they've paid too much for it and they can't get the money back. Um, so all of these policy tweaks in some ways, you know, it, it's, it's a more sophisticated version of when we had the land rezonings you can get a windfall profit because if you're if suddenly overnight you can do build to rent apartments to much lower standards um, and you have get out clauses whereby you don't have to provide creches to the same standard as you would in build to sell and you don't have to provide playgrounds and you no balconies and you've got hundreds of people sharing one lift um, you know on paper then you'll have a proposal that looks a lot more lucrative uh, but the whole community that's to the detriment of the whole community because there's no point building housing that's for the short term you you know, there's no point building for the tech workers in Dublin for the next couple of years who, um, you know, could be gone now after this pandemic or might decide to all work remotely. Um, whatever stock of housing is built is going to be there for the next 100 years. And, you know, we should be building housing now with that sort of level of forward thinking, whereby uh, we're building in communities in the city and we're building in housing for a whole mix of people to be permanently and not this transience we're building in with hotels and student housing and co-living. Um, because the longer term government policy and, and the longer term climate strategy has to be that we live a little bit more densely and more compactly than urban sprawl. And we have city communities. I mean, if you look around Dublin, we have well-established city communities that want to grow and that could be developed into, uh, you know, a very good model for what we have. And instead of supporting these communities in areas like Ringsend and Dublin 8 and other parts of the city, um, they're being displaced. You know, people who who maybe grew up in a two-bedroom flat and have a job in the city now and want to stay locally um, can't afford to, to buy or to rent anywhere locally and are moving out to the commuter belt and being displaced. And, and these are, in fact, you know, this is the model for our future development. These are the people who should be supported to stay, uh, you know, because ironically, we now have city schools that have capacity and we have uh, people moving to the commuter belt who have their kids in prefabs and who are sitting in traffic to commute back into town and who have maybe elderly family members 
members unsupported, you know, in areas where um, the children and their grandchildren have been displaced. Um, so the short term, you know, thinking around all of this isn't the way to make a sustainable city. And if we want to attract the people who are who are spending you know, 350,000 or more on, on new homes in the commuter belt uh, and spending time commuting. If we want to give them a viable alternative to that unsustainable lifestyle, um, we have to make the cities really attractive for them. So they have to be child friendly. We have to have housing that is big enough for people to have a family in, to have a decent, you know, balcony or garden or outside space. So maybe they're in a terraced house, um, like some of the older models of Dublin, like um, maybe Drumcondra or Ranland places where, you know, they're quite sustainable densities. Uh, we, we can quite easily have people living in that form of housing where we can support public transport and local services. We can quite easily densify some of our older suburbs where we have surface car parks with three and four and five storey apartments of decent sizes for people who have smaller households or want to downsize and you move from a four or five bedroom house in those communities and want to stay local. Um, so that kind of, uh, I suppose, in America, sometimes they call this the missing middle. You know, that the solution to our housing is the missing middle. It's not high rise in the city centre and it's not sprawl in the commuter belt. It's densifying the areas where we have infrastructure and bus routes and shops and supermarkets and schools in a more gentle way with terraced housing, with medium-rise apartment buildings um, and doing it incrementally. You know, there's no... Uh, you know the, the the sustainable way to do this is to use what we have and and where there are areas with good infrastructure um, you can quite easily start to use up the space or use the land better and where we have vacancy in our cities and towns which is really extensive um, we can start to house the smaller households as well um, in you know the kind of places that might be an Airbnb in, in Barcelona or Paris um, over a shop will would be make very good housing here for people who are on the homeless list, people who are coming out of direct provision, um, you know, where people are very integrated in communities um, not stigmatised in any way with a particular type of institutional housing and where the footfall supports the local shops. And it's, it's, go on, Andrea. It's all very well saying we need to do that, but how do we make that happen? Like how do, how do conscious, conscientious citizens go about bringing about that type of like city to live in if we don't know how to make those planning happen, if the planners are all answerable to policy that's answerable to profit, how do we make those type of cities happen? Um, well, I think maybe for the last few years, the, you know, there's been a sort of view that the entire uh, development sector was absolutely decimated in the crash and that whatever they need to get back on their feet, we should do, you know. Um, and I think that's been a bit misguided. People always confuse the construction industry with the property development industry and they're two different things, you know. The construction industry are the people who, who make their profit out of building and the development sector make their profit out of um, out of land. So whether that's a planning application or, you know, um, a change in zoning or a, a change in policy, um, the money is made when that happens. It doesn't, it's not made when the thing is built. Um, so we need to con- support the construction industry to come back. We also need I think government to have more joined up thinking that um, the developers uh, have their market but but you know saying that that's the only solution has been a mistake because um, it, it puts too many eggs in one basket really and and that is a very market dependent so it's dependent on cycle if we hit recession um, you'll find the development sector just stops building and you know the government is in 
completely almost entirely reliant on that sector now for for new housing so um you know it's it's been a very risky strategy to rely on a sector that's very cyclical and it stops building when prices drop um you know we also i think have to be clever about how government is spending money and um, we've got into a situation now where you know it's not unusual for the government to be spending 500,000 to acquire a social home um because they're buying a lot in private developments and they're leasing at very high rates. Um, now, that's just not sustainable because we won't be able to meet the need with that level of investment. It's also, I think, socially very disruptive because, you know, there are people who are saving very hard for for deposits um, and, you know, maybe living with family and living in non-ideal situations to try and get on the property ladder. Uh, and then they see the government coming in and buying housing in new estates yeah, and, and significant volumes of it, and also letting invest international investors buy significant volumes um, and to lease, sometimes to lease back to the government and, and other times to lease rent into the private rental sector. So the people who are working very hard and trying to get a, you know, their own home and to secure their own retirement and their own future um, are, are being outbid by both the state and international investors. Um, uh, you know, and that's, that's not good, I suppose, for for the, the system generally and um, that people who uh, are, are looking to I suppose do what we were all told to do which was save up for deposit and buy a house and have your own independence and pay for it um, are, are being squeezed out uh, by the system and also that the priority has been to maintain prices um, and you know we've had 10 years of government policy to inflate house prices back up to where they were to deal with negative equity rather than thinking, well, maybe we need a parallel market. You know, maybe we do need to get people out of negative equity, but we also need a parallel market that's affordable to people who have been, you know, through a tough recession and precarious employment and everything else, whereby this parallel market can can give people mortgages on a 250,000 home or can give people rents on a cost rental for a thousand or less a month. Um, and the enormous social and economic benefit there would be to the country if that was done at scale. Um, uh, you know, the people could just get on with their lives. You know, so many people are, are disrupted by this, um, you know, distress in the housing market. You know, at, at the, the really sharp end, we have people in homelessness. Um, but then, you know, in, in every other way, we have people in overcrowded, we have people commuting too long a distance, we have people delaying um, having children because they don't have space or because they can't afford a creche as well as a mortgage. Um, and, you know, all of these things are not healthy for our society, um, that the distress in housing is impacting on everything. It's impacting on, on you know, uh, people taking up educational opportunities, it's impacting on people uh, moving jobs and mobility in, in the um, employment market. You know, it's impacting on um, women staying in the workplace sometimes because um, the commute and the crash fees and everything else is pushing them out. Um, and, and ironically, it's probably uh, making our future pension crisis worse uh, because we are uh, pursuing a whole load of policies that are deterring people from having children who would be paying tax in 20 or 30 years time um, and also uh, deterring people from building their own asset for retirement um, you know by not being able to buy a house if they want to or not being able to have an affordable rent that lets them put some savings aside. So we need to contact our TDs who are making the policy. I think, yeah, I think we need to maybe, as people, there's an education element here too, that people join the dots. You know, we see a lot of people jumping on board with, you know, high rises solution or let's not have NIMBYs and, you know, a sort of very kind of superficial commentary without understanding 
that this, it's like a mechanism of a clock in some ways. You know, you have to look at everything at the same time to see what you're doing. And, at, you know, at government level, you know, um, you know, small interventions can often um, have very serious unintended consequences, as we will see now with this raft of co-living applications on sites where people really want apartments. Um, so, uh, and sometimes we're having co-living applications on sites where there's a live planning permission for apartments. You know, there are there are 30,000 ready to go uh, planning permissions for housing in Dublin. You know, and we're still being told that planning is a barrier to housing. Um, and yet, you know, there are 30,000 that could start tomorrow morning that already have planning permission and there's zoned land for 100,000 more. Um, so planning planning's never really been the problem here. I think the issue is is higher up the chain in, uh, in at government level um, actively managing this uh, entire system and market, I suppose, in a different way and having a much longer term view than supply targets for 2020 or supply targets for 2021 um, and, and starting to think, you know, what, what, what's, what would a win look like? You know, what would, what would success look like here? Would it be back to, you know, 60, 70 or 80 percent of people being able to fully afford their own housing with no state subsidy? That would be, you know, that would uh, give people a lot of, empower people to make choices in their lives and to spend their money differently. Um, and how, how might we do that? And is it in sustainable communities where kids can walk to school and people have, you know, all the things we've enjoyed in the access to parks and, you know, more cycle lanes and uh, less traffic and access to the things you've mentioned to do with, you know, the, the cultural and social and artistic community also are able to access our city uh, and that's another whole other sector that have been really badly squeezed out with this imperative of property development. Orla, before you go, just one one more thing. Um, thanks so much for this conversation. It's been really informative, um, really fascinating and measured. But um, the previous housing minister, Owen Murphy, became something of a whipping boy with regards to um, his approach or what was perceived to be his approach, including um, kind of holding up the particular developments that we're now seeing, like, uh, you know, calling co-living trendy boutique apartment or hotel dwelling mm-hmm. or whatever. Um, lots of people were fiercely critical of him. Um, we certainly uh, were slash are on this podcast. I have been myself as well in, in some of my writing. Do you think that he... did some damage to the trajectory of um, urban development or is that too easy to just personalise it um, against his own kind of perceived attitudes uh, or maybe a worldview, I suppose? Well, I, I think I think there have been a number of interventions that have been really damaging. And I talked to her at the beginning of this about the framework, you know, where people, where the local authority have a have a kind of stable policy for six years. And um, the most damaging has been the interventions that have overridden that. Um, it's so so such as you know, local authorities doing very detailed work on where is appropriate for height. And most of Dublin had permission for nine stories before all this started, and some for very high buildings. Um, and in, in the historic quarter, then. Um, more like five floors. Um, so by saying all of that work has been done and now we're going to scrap it because the minister says height caps are arbitrary and you can make an application for anything you want, um, that has been really, really regressive because um, it, it threw out um, the fact that planning is a is, it's a discipline. You know, it's an expert. There's an area of expertise and training in all of this and there was an awful lot of work gone into um, uh, deciding what was appropriate and a public consultation in all of that that was quite lengthy. 
healthy. Um, and, and to say then that it's arbitrary and we won't have it anymore, you know, is, is definitely regressive. Um, also, I think introducing co-living and uh, lower standards for co-living, which are effectively bed sits, and lower standards for bill to rent. You know, bill to, it doesn't matter if somebody is renting or buying. You know, housing standards need to be decent. You know, people need uh, to be able to ventilate their rooms and opening a door onto a balcony can do that. Having decent amounts of daylight, having cross-ventilation, not queuing up for lifts in the morning because too many people are on the lift. You know, having um, p- being able to have children in those blocks because you'll know there'll be a playground and there'll be crash capacity. Um, all of that is, is quite regressive. Um, and that was all done by ministerial order rather than anything at local authority level. Um, so I think that has been quite regressive and, and also not, um, you know, not, I suppose, doing the research around that. You know, clearly that those, those policies favour developers, um, but they don't come free. You know, there's a cost for everybody else uh, because the money will be made in the short term, but the long term consequences will be that if we build substandard housing, what happens is that poor people end up living there. And they end up living in poor circumstances, often overcrowded, um, often in blocks that are badly maintained. Um, so you're sort of creating in the system the opportunity for future slums rather than uh, sort of future proofing around all of that. Um, and I think that that's been a mistake as well. Um, and not supporting city communities, I think, has been a mistake where we have communities, um, uh, as you mentioned earlier, where there's been a lot of student accommodation built. Um, you know, those those student blocks are very inward looking and people stay there for a number of months they don't really contribute anything locally to, to the local um, shops or street life or anything else um, so it does it does uh, squeeze out uh, you know the local community uh, being more established and having the services that they need on their doorstep and um, so I think a lot of that has been quite regressive um, I, I, I would you know hope that some of that might be revisited and and maybe it'll be It'll be budgetary constraints, maybe that, you know, revisit some of this in the future, um, because uh, it's going to be very difficult for the state to keep up this policy of paying very high prices to the private sector to meet the housing need. Thanks so much for your time, Orla. Really, really fantastic. And I think our listeners are going to get a huge amount out of that. Uh, Really appreciate your expertise today. Thank you. Andrea, what is getting in the sea? This week, oh my goodness. So, Ben Shapiro, who, let's be honest, can get in the sea most of the time. But this week, uh, in particular, his reaction to WAPs in general, um, I'm not sure if everyone's heard the new track from Cardi B with Megan Thee Stallion. It's Uh, It's a pop song, I believe. It's a pop music song. It's a, it's, it's a rap. It's a rap. Um, and WAP is, in fact, a wet-ass pussy. So Ben Shapiro is most famous for his reverb uh, of facts don't care about your feelings. Um, and he's a bit of an asshole. Um, but it turns out that Shapiro has actually never encountered a WAP himself. As his wife has attributed the... Um, experience of a WAP to bacterial vaginosis, a yeast infection, or trichomonas. I think he spelled that wrong, which was like, if you can't spell it, don't diagnose it, babes. Um, And she has told him that it wasn't normal to have a WAP. How do we know about this? This is an extraordinarily intimate thing to know about someone. How do we know about it? Because it's on Twitter. He said it? Yeah. 
Oh my God, what a dose. Now, there are many reasons, obviously, that a WAP may not occur in a biological sense, and that is all G2. But attributing the possible requirement for a mop and bucket after a good sexual encounter to bacterial vaginosis, yeast infection, or trichomonas is just ridiculous. Come on, like. Um, And maybe, perhaps, Ben, facts don't care about feelings in your partner's vagina. What seems to be the case is that porn sites and presidents are deeming it okay for men to grab a woman by the pussy and it isn't okay for a woman to delight in the experience of her cup runneth over and women being in control of their own sexuality. So Ben Shapiro being outraged, men nay threatened by wet ass pussies can indeed get in the sea. Splash. Gush. Lop <laughs> <laughs> and book required. <laughs> Andrea. Uh, I know you're feeling a little fruity today. So that can only mean one thing. We need to come up with some theme music for this. Uh, That's right, everyone. It's bananas. It's bananas. Uh, So I would spend a lot of my time always trying to balance out thoughts and feelings and emotions and facts. So when Ona Breen came to uh, launch his bill to outlaw the uh, co-living experiences based on there's been uh, one in House Cross recently this week that came up um, with like 45 people sharing a kitchen and a sitting room. Now, obviously, the idea of co-living itself is actually bananas. Um, And I was very interested to see people pointing out, like, let's say you wanted to cook meringues in a shared kitchen that was for 45 people. You're going to need three hours of an oven. But you only really, if you start cooking your dinner at, say, five, everyone doesn't get a shot at the kitchen till half 12. So when are you ever going to cook meringues? Obviously, that's a very bizarre take on it, but it's a really interesting one for me. So that in itself is bananas. But then I was looking at all the people who are responding to this bill going, this is absolutely ridiculous. We need co-living. The people who are actually supporting the idea of co-living, and I get that there is co-living that has worked around the world, but that the, the ones that they were showing was like these Georgian houses that have been brought back to life with five people living in them. Yeah, that's fair enough. That's just people sharing a house. 45 people on one floor living in car parking spaces, sharing a kitchen, trying to cook their meringues is not making sense. So these people who are coming out going, it's just one section and uh, landlords don't set the rent, renters do. That is fucking bullshit. So these people who are coming out going, this is a way that anyone should live are absolutely bananas. Like, Get a fucking a grip of yourselves. And also, um, it's these are the people who think co-living is a good idea, by the way. Because they'll never have to live in it. Of course. And because Brian just invested in one, you know, and it's going to be great. You know, that kind of shit. Uh, I know these people because I am from South County Dublin. <laughs> and this is the Petri dish that gives birth to people who um, make loads of money building shit properties uh, while living in actual massive Jordan, Georgian gaffs themselves, which funnily enough have stood the test of time uh, because 40 people weren't sharing one fucking Nutribullet in them. Anyway, 
that's besides the point. What I do like about Ono Bryn's um, uh, proposed bill to ban co-living is that it's just the perfect, like politically, it's so, it's kind of genius in a way because it's like, how is the Green Party, for example, because obviously they're just like the perennial whipping boys of coalition governments going to be like, oh shit, you know, like we have to vote this down, this as well. He's just going to like, you know, uh, I'm proposing a bill on you can't be a dick to anyone. You know, it's just like, it kind of reminds me of, um, well, you know, this like, it's probably an urban legend, but like this thing about Lyndon Johnson, you know, LBJ in America in like the late 40s when he was, um, uh, running for like he he was running for the Senate again or whatever, and his opponent I think in the primary was a pig farmer, and so the kind of story goes or whatever that LBJ went to his campaign manager and said that they should spread a rumor that the pig farmer um basically was having sex with his pigs. And the campaign manager was like, what are you talking about that? Like, we can't say that. Politics. (laughs) They're just like, we can't say that. Like, that's not true. And Johnson was like, of course it's not, but let's make the bastard deny it. So, like, I feel like there's a lot of, you know, uh, legislation drafting that's like, Obviously, I fully believe that Anna Bryn thinks that co-living is a load of pants because he actually knows a good deal about quality housing. I too, uh, and many, many people, besides the people who are actually like making money off these random property portfolios of co-living stuff around the world, like they are with purpose-built student accommodation, which like property speculators as developers basically call like, you know, the gold, the golden goose of squeezing profit out of land. Anyway, I definitely believe that um, loads of people, including Ono Brin, think co-living is a terrible idea and that it's only really good for making money for aforementioned uh, Dublin boys who went to uh, oh, we Smurf Business School. More density. Yeah, more density. I'll give you more density. density. Uh, but at the same time, I also think politically it is very smart to basically be framing bills around banning something really unpopular and then making uh, the people in government vote those things down because it just looks so bad. And then everybody goes, I can't believe, like, this is what's going to happen. Guaranteed, this is what's going to happen. The bill is going to be proposed. It's an opposition bill. It will get support amongst left-wing parties, etc. The Green Party will be like, oh no, we hate co-living too. And the government, Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil will be like, we don't give a fuck. Uh, we're just going to vote it down. Anyway, Green Party is going to have to row in and vote it down. And everybody's going to be like, oh, the Greens, they just have no backbone. Look at how they're just like selling everyone down the river. And then Sinn Féin's housing policy will get more attention. And that's all from Irish politics in this episode. <laughs> but that's just that's just what's going to happen. It's a good strategic move as well as a populist one. And uh, you know, it's it's good. It's a good time to be in opposition in Ireland. Like uh, this is obviously an awful thing to say, but it must be so. Don't don't defame anyone. <laughs> Not today. <laughs> it must be so fun to be a political strategist. Even though you're playing with people's lives, if you take that out, just be like, we'll put this bill forward and then they'll have to do this. And then, ha we score points. Like that, that 
is the strategy shit I love doing. Um, but obviously I wouldn't like it in politics because you're literally fucking people over. It's basically just shade through legislation. Yeah, it's oh, so juicy. What are your fave bits this week, Andrea? I see one on the list. Surely there's more. My fave bit this week is a miles away from my hangover. It was, it was before my hangover world began. When I, BH. When I was much more wholesome. When I got up, and I live in Blessington at the moment, so I got up at quarter to five, that's four on a digital clock, um, and went for a sunrise swim, um, which was absolutely magical. We went to the 40 foot, um, and there was like about 150 people there when we arrived at first sunrise at like 5.45. That is absolutely bananas. Uh, not really, I suppose, but like it was a popular decision. But afterwards we did a beautiful cacao ceremony and like I sound like a different person. I'm fucking white well wasted. Cacao <laughs> ceremony in the morning. Um, Tell me about the cacao ceremony. This intrigues me. Um, It's just really about... I don't know how other people see it. I see it personally as adding meaning to something you do. And you're you're drinking cacao and but what Which is just like hot hot chocolate, is it? It's not sweet, so it has a more no. it has a more um, You're not like sitting around Sandy Cove doing ayahuasca at sunrise in uh, no, Friday morning. It's not a hallucinogenic, but it does have a higher frequency to what the frequency we operate on. So it, it lifts your frequency um, and in a way that similar to coffee, but without the coffee come down. And if you, whatever you bring then to your ceremony, whether it's like sage or Palo Santo and then whatever, what you do is you sit down and set your intentions and focus on that while the sun is rising. And the energy from a sunrise and water is obviously very strong. And then you infuse your intentions into your cacao and then drink your intentions. And I have to say it worked because Five minutes after drinking my cacao, seven big rugby lads appeared around the corner. (laughs) (laughs) So there you go. Amazing. That's amazing. Um, Great. I'm really glad that your intentions were manifested in that manner. It sounds very, very healing for you. Um, Yeah, that's, that's really great. I haven't managed to do a sunrise swim this week. Uh, however, I was swimming in Seapoint on Tuesday evening and it was delightful. Uh, but that's, believe it or not, not in my fave bits because I know that um, sea swimming, one of the one of the um, impacts of sea swimming is that you develop a tick where you have to repeatedly tell people that you're doing it. <laughs> and um, like, put it on Instagram or social media. And like, if you're not sea swimming at the moment, what are you actually spending your days doing? Because it's, it's, it's a wave, get it? That's taken the nation. Um, yeah so we're going to stop I'm going to try and suppress that reflex uh, that is infused in the salt of um, the radiation in Dublin Bay Um, and instead talk about my fave bits uh, one of which is also an activity actually two activities in one on Sunday I went to play a game of rounders with some gal pals in the Phoenix Rounders for Sounders. Uh, 
and it was a spectacular experience. So yes, Rinders and uh, really, really fab and just like good crack. And again, it just kind of brought home that thing to me of with the whole living in a global pandemic that you kind of have to have activities that don't fight the context. So you have to do things that are that are fulfilling uh, without trying to work around um, distancing and all that kind of stuff. And Rounders is a good example of that. Um, because ultimately life has no meaning. So we're just going to have to find some <laughs> within it. My other fave bit was um, Frisbee. So my friend Bucko, uh, who is uh, an amazing person, uh, has a Frisbee called, which I was not familiar with, but, you know, I subsequently learned like so many things that I'm not familiar with, but everybody has known about this uh, object for many years, which is an aerobi fr- Frisbee. Um, which kind of has a hole in the middle and you can catch it on your head. Um, and uh, it is made of silicone, I suppose. And it's very satisfying to catch. And interestingly, uh, Andrew, I can tell by your face, you're just simply captivated uh, by this information. Um, <laughs> it was invented by the same gentleman who invented the AeroPress. Wow. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, well, I find I find that fascinating. Um, you know, there's there's very little uh, uh, that that needs to pass for news or gossip these days. So when you find out that a throwing object was invented by a man who invented a method for brewing coffee, oh, well, I tell you, my just, own, my just, own, jeez, that that made my day. That was a three. You Three been, full days of telling people that story. You must have been and now it's on the go. podcast. I am, that is, I am going to put that in the podcast this week. I'd say. <laughs> Literally, that is what has become of us all. Um, I don't know if other people are doing this, but like, you know, trying to like really kind of mine people for any kind of news or gossip. I mean, I made you literally give me a step-by-step voice note of your day slash night out I'm like and then what happened and then what happened oh my god really and then what happened because um you know uh, there's very little going on and Maybe you know we'll play that voice note will we hear it <laughs> god <Okay>. Jesus <laughs> absolutely not um okay listeners I'm sure you have just been outright riveted by that and if there was any ever ever a time to tell your friends to sign up to our Patreon so you can get more of this juicy Frisbee AeroPress content then now is the time okay. <laughs> let's, let's move this podcast along <laughs> what is the deal Andrea? the deal is wear a mask like everyone's wearing a mask fair play to you don't go on holidays abroad keep your distance uh, stay away from people if you have to be in rooms and be sound to each other um, and now for our tuna chicken roll, how could it be any other song this week after this week's Get in the Sea? It is Cardi B and Megan Thee Stallion with Wet Ass Pussy. I've been Una. I've been Andrea. That was Who's Planning Our Cities. <laughs> and we are United <laughs> Ireland. In this I said certified free, seven days a week, wet ass pussy, make that pullout game weak, 
Gobble me, swallow me, drip down the side of me Quick yeah. jump out for you, let it get inside of me I tell them yeah. where to put it, never tell them where I'm about to be I run down on them before I have a nigga running me Talk your shit, fight your lip Ask for a car while you ride that dick You really ain't never got him fucking for a thing He already made his mind up before he came Now get your boots, hang your coat Fuck this wet ass pussy He bought a phone just for pictures of this wet ass pussy Pay my tuition just to kiss me on this wet ass pussy Now make it rain if you wanna see some wet ass pussy Look, I need a hard hit, I need a deep stroke I need a handy drink, I need a weed smoke Not a garden snake, I need a king cobra With a hook in it, hopefully lean over He got some money, then that's where I'm headed Pussy A1, just like his credit He got a beer, well I'm tryna wet it I let him taste it, now he diabetic I don't wanna spit, I wanna go I wanna gag, I wanna choke I want you to touch that little dangly thing That's swinging the back of my throat My head game is fire, Bunani Dasani is going and drying, it's coming outside Yeah, I run yeah. on that thing, now the cars behind me I spit on his mic and I heat tryna sign me Your Honor, I'm a freak bitch, handcuffs, leashes Switch my wig, make him feel like he cheating Put him on his knees, give him something to believe in Never lost a fight, but I'm looking for a beat In the food chain, I'm the one that eat you If he ate my ass, he's a bottom feeder Big D stand for big demeanor I can make you bust before I ever meet you If it don't hang, then he can't bang You can't hurt my feelings, but I like pain If he fuck me and ask who's is it When I ride the dick, I'ma spell my name Ah. Yeah, you fucking with some wet ass pussy. Bring a bucket and a mop for this wet ass pussy. Give me everything you got for this wet ass pussy. Now from the top, make it drop. That's some wet ass pussy. Now get a bucket and a mop. That's some wet ass pussy. I'm talking wop, wop, wop. That's some wet ass pussy. Macaroni in a pot. That's some wet ass pussy, huh? There's some hoes in this house. There's some hoes in this house. There's some hoes in this house.